0: And if you would turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. If you're new around here, uh, we have been in a study of John's Gospel now for a couple of months. We're not super far into this. We'll be wrapping up chapter 6 today. Um, And if you need uh, a copy of Scripture, if you don't have that on your phone or something like that, uh, we have a number of Bibles back here on our resource table to my left, your right. And I encourage you to grab one of those and use it today. Just keep it open in front of you. And if you don't have one at home, feel free to just take that home with you and let it be our gift to you today. John chapter 6, we're going to be starting in verse 60 today and going to the end of this chapter. So would you join me this morning as I read this to us? When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. For he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we explored how Jesus seemed to just continually be upping the level of challenge for those who were seeking to follow him. He was continually doing things and saying things that seemingly took it up a notch. If we're talking about the level of commitment that his followers were called to. Um, But what we saw was that he was not just randomly trying to increase the level of challenge just for the sake of making following him more challenging. What he was really trying to do was he was strategically calling people to see that he was the real prize, that Christ himself was the real treasure, not just what he could do for people. Does that make sense? He was trying to show people that he himself was the real prize, not just the things that he could do for people. To paraphrase his words uh, from earlier in chapter 6 that we read last week, don't follow me because you think I can give you bread, as he had done in feeding the 5,000, follow me because I am bread. He said, I am the bread of life. I am so much more than a medicine man or a shaman or a genie or even a human king. I am literally the author of life. And that's where John began this whole gospel in the beginning at the creation of everything he begins there and he says that jesus is the divine logos this greek word for word that he is the divine word and that in the beginning it was the word of god that created all things there is nothing that is john says that wasn't made through him And so from the get-go, John's been trying to show us he's so much more than just the Messiah. He is God. He is divine. But then what we saw at the end of the sermon last week was he seems to cross a line with people with these words. This is verse 53. Truly I say to you, Where people get off the bus. Last week, um, we explored those words, and I was thinking about a a friend of mine who uh, leads a youth ministry, and he also has been taking his churched teenagers through the Gospel of John. And he was telling me that they got to this passage in John's Gospel where Jesus says, You have to eat my flesh, and you have to drink my blood. And they read this passage. And he was shocked that none of his students had any questions about that, that everybody just kind of seemingly took it in and acted like it was normal. And they just wanted to move on. And and I think some of that is because for those of us who are churched, I think we assume that Jesus here is just talking about Holy Communion or what we think of as the Lord's Supper, that he's just talking about this ritual that he would ultimately establish on the night that he's arrested in which bread and wine would come to represent his body and his blood. I think a lot of us think that that's just kind of what he's getting at here. But but here's the question. Is that really what he's getting at here? Is that really what he's talking about here? Is that that all there is to this? That, That he's just trying to establish this thing that his followers will continue to do even after he's gone? You know, I actually think... That as important as Holy Communion is, and it is important, I actually think that Jesus is getting at something even more foundational here. Even more foundational than Holy Communion in these words. So so first, let me begin by saying this. Jesus clearly did not mean that people would have to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved. Why? Because no one did that. No one did that. There was no point where the disciples actually ate his flesh and actually drank his blood. It seems far more obvious that this is yet another example of the metaphorical and sometimes hyperbolic language That Jesus has been using throughout John's gospel and will continue to use throughout John's gospel Jesus has said things like you must be born again Or he said I have living water and if you drink it, you will never thirst again He has said I am the bread of life. So do we literally have to be born again physically? No That was Nicodemus's question, remember? Do I have to somehow crawl back up inside my mother and come out again? No, no, no. That's not what Jesus was saying. Do we literally have to drink some kind of special water? No. Do do we literally have to eat some kind of special bread? No. Instead, Jesus is using earthly language to point to a spiritual reality. But notice, guys... The whole theme of this chapter is food. The whole theme of this chapter is food. This chapter began with Jesus and thousands of people being out in the wilderness and everybody's hungry and he feeds them right? He, he takes a few loaves of bread and a few pieces of fish, and he feeds possibly as many as fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people. John only records the number of men that were there. There were 5,000 men. So if you take into consideration women and children, it's an enormous group of people that he feeds. So, so that's where we began with all of this. Um, and so then the people like really start following him around after they've eaten, and, and then he chides them for seeking earthly bread when the bread of life is right in front of them. And then he tells them that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. So so food and eating and drinking is at the center of all of this. And we are what we eat, right? It's pretty much common knowledge today that if you eat the standard American diet, often identified by the acrostic sad, right, Uh, high fat, high carbs, high sugar, highly processed foods, that that if that's just what you eat in the long term you're probably going to be overweight. Uh, you're probably going to be at a greater risk for things like heart disease and diabetes and those kinds of things because what we ingest, or, or put another way, what fuels us really does shape our well-being or lack thereof. And the same thing is true with Christ. And, and here, I think, is a big part of John's message to us. Part of the, the real message of John is... It is to believe that Jesus is God incarnate and that if we will imbibe him, if we will take him in, if if he becomes what fuels us, then it is to our good. It will transform us. We will become the thing that we are ingesting. But to continue the metaphor here, we have to change our diet. Like we have to repent of the old diet. We can't just continue to eat the old diet and and like throw a salad and some tofu on top of it and expect it to do anything significant. No, we have to stop eating junk and we have to start feasting on what is actually nourishing eternally. Water, bread, flesh, blood, all of this is Christ himself. He is all of these things. He is what we must truly take in. So do do you get that metaphor, guys? Do you get this idea that I cannot continue to just live the way that I was living before Christ and just add on, on top of that, some religious sprinkles and expect that to do anything? No, I have to change Like I have to turn away from what I was and where I was and what I was doing and how I was thinking and how I was living, not just add some things on top of that. I have to totally start down a new road where the things that I'm taking in and the things that are driving me and fueling me are different and are rooted in the person and work of Christ. Yet, nevertheless, Jesus is being intentionally provocative here he doesn 't try to make it easier to understand. You notice that like he doesn 't go hang on, hang on, wait, wait a second. That came out wrong let me Let me put that another way no he doesn 't say anything like that. He knows exactly what he 's doing right And what John seems to be suggesting here and in other places is that there are those whom the Father has drawn to Jesus. And those are the ones who perhaps have ears to hear what he's really saying or eyes to see who he really is. Whereas everyone else receives his words in the most literal ways. Look at our text, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Uh, That word that gets translated hard literally means offensive it doesn't mean like difficult to understand it means uh harsh that that would probably be a better rendering of this this is a harsh saying it's like a a difficult thing for me to hear and this is why they say who can listen to this they don't ask does anyone understand this or who understands this they say who wants to hear this drinking his blood and eating his flesh. This is rough, right? Who wants to listen to this stuff? But, but Jesus, look, verse 61, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Jesus recognizes not that they don't get it, but that they're offended by it. It bothers them. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before Uh, Methetes is the Greek word here for disciples. And we find that word something like 81 times here in John's gospel. It's actually more than in any of the other three gospels. However, what's interesting is that only seven of Jesus's disciples are actually named in John's gospel, plus an additional uh, beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, which is traditionally thought to be John, the gospel writer. When we think of the disciples, though, most of us are inclined to think of 12 guys in particular, but the reality was that those 12 were simply the inner circle, and there is some indication here in the Gospels that women were also, there were some women who were a part of that inner circle as well. But Jesus had many more disciples, especially if you use that word, methetes, in its most literal uh, rendering, which is just learner. There There were many, dozens if not hundreds, of people who were thinking of themselves um, or others might identify them as disciples of Jesus. And notice John differentiates here in our text between the disciples, kind of this mass group of learners, and the 12. It's the first time he's used that phrase here in this gospel to describe that inner circle of disciples, the 12. And it seems here when it says uh, many of his disciples heard it and they said this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? It seems that he's not talking about the 12 here, but instead he's talking more about the outer circle of disciples, those who are sort of hanging on around Jesus and who might think of themselves as followers of Jesus. They're the ones who perhaps are struggling the most with these words about eating flesh and drinking blood, and they are the ones who ultimately decide to walk away from jesus in this passage but notice here's jesus's question to them this is verse 62 would you still struggle with these words if you saw the heavens opened and me ascending to my throne at the right hand of god right? You find these words offensive. You're bothered by what I'm saying. You think of these things as being harsh, but what if all of a sudden the heavens were open and you saw me ascend to my place of power at the right hand of God? Would your, would your opinion change? W- would, would you suddenly go, Okay, maybe I do actually need to listen to what he's saying here. Even though it's difficult, even though maybe it's not what I want to hear, when when if you were like suddenly truly confronted with the power and position of Christ, would you maybe go, "Okay, maybe I need to back up and rethink some of these things that he's saying." Because sure, they've seen him do some miraculous things at this point in time. But what if you saw something that was absolutely undeniable? That I am, in fact, the divine logos, the word who made all things. Would, would that change your tune? It almost foreshadows Jesus' words to Thomas. Later, Thomas, who doubted famously that the resurrection had actually happened, even though he's certainly not the only one who doubted that the resurrection had happened. Um, when Jesus, though, confronts Thomas, the resurrected Jesus confronts Thomas in John 20, 29, Thomas confesses his belief at that point, and Jesus says, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Here's what John seems to be suggesting. There are many who might hold the title of disciple, but the true disciples are the ones who don't walk away. Jesus later says in John 8, if you abide in my word, that word abide means remain. If you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Or even later in John 15, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you which is one of the most misused verses in Christian history, I think, right? We love the last part of that verse, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you, but recognize that that is predicated on a disciple being fully permeated with the person of Christ, right? If you are abiding in me and my words are abiding in you, like just this symbiotic state, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He goes on and he says, by this my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You know, we live in a world today where like in American Christianity, there can be this sense that there are Christians and then like there's this upper tier of Christian called disciple. And that sounds good. And it certainly maybe makes you feel better about where you're at in your walk with christ the only problem with that mode of thinking is that jesus never says anything like that in fact jesus never talks about christians at all jesus only really ever talks about disciples or a word that is analogous with disciple, such as believer or follower So Jesus never delineates like different tiers of followers. He's calling everybody to do these things that we're talking about today, to take him in for his word to permeate you and me, for him to be in you and me, and for us to be in him. So there is a sense in which Jesus, through his words, and that's a key part of this, Or through his words, he's identifying who the true disciples are and who the false disciples are. If you remain in me, if my words remain in you. And here's what he's getting at, if you're not seeing it. He wants you and me, those who would identify as disciples of Christ, to have the same kind of relationship with him that he has with the Father. He wants us to have the same kind of relationship with him that he has with the Father. And here's what he said about that relationship, his relationship with the Father. He said, I and the Father are one. I do nothing of my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. I can do nothing on my own because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And I could go on and on. There are a number of passages like that. But do you you see what I'm getting at here? Like in biblical marriage, we talk about the one flesh union, right? That God brings a man and a woman together and they become one flesh. But marriage is simply an earthly picture of the union that we are called to with Christ, Jesus basically says, the true disciple is the one who is so permeated with me that he becomes me. And that is what is happening, not only as we take his words in, but as he fills us with his Holy Spirit and as he sanctifies us and ultimately glorifies us, that we are becoming more and more and more and more like him. Back to the food analogy, it's like you've eaten so many carrots that you turn orange. Right? That's that's the picture here. That's why the imagery of flesh and blood is so key. What are we, after all? Right? What are you? What's the idiom that we use all the time? I'm just flesh and blood. Right? Like we use that phrase to describe our humanity or our physiology, as if that's like the foundation of our being. Man, I'm just flesh and blood. Jesus says, I want you, as my disciples, to have so taken me in that my flesh and my blood becomes your flesh and blood, that I am in you and you are in me, that we are one that comes from the bread of life, you are not going to get that from simply eating his flesh. You're you're not going to get that simply from some religious ritual, even as good and beautiful and wonderful as it is. No, no, no. And, and, And that sounds like an immediate contradiction of what he just said, doesn't it? But that's only if we are taking him as being completely literal here, which we aren't through this whole eating and drinking thing no 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 the life that the bread of life gives us comes through the spirit of God he says and the spirit of God comes through believing the words of Christ remember he is the word and his words are life he says His words are key. And what John teaches is that God plays a role in you and me being awakened to believe the words of Christ. That it's not just smart people or educated people or people who are especially good at thinking in the abstract, but it is those who are awakened and illuminated by God who recognize and remain in the words of Christ. And the teaching is clear. It is God who saves. God is the sovereign in this equation. You can't come to Christ unless it is granted to you by the Father, Jesus says here. But if the Father grants you to come to Christ, his words beckon you to remain to rest in him, to abide in him, to ingest him, to take him in. God is the one who saves, yet we must remain in Christ. And I simply don't think that we are capable of doing that solely on our own. We certainly can't save ourselves, right? And this is where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Father grants us to come to Christ, but it is the Spirit who gives life and is it is the Spirit that empowers us to remain in the words of Christ, to endure. The New Testament says in the words of Christ. And I think we'll see this more clearly in just a second. After this many of his disciples, this is verse 66. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, "Do you want to go away as well?" Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, Peter is often celebrated here for saying, you have the words of eternal life, as if he's had some revelation. But he's really just repeating what Jesus said just a few verses before this, right? He's just parroting back What Jesus said back in verse 63, it is also this very Peter, right? Where else can we go? You have the words of life. It is also this very Peter who not a long time after this will say, I tell you, I don't know the man. And it is also this very Peter that Christ says he will build his church on. So Peter's a great case study here for us. A few observations Uh, If you have not remained in the words of Christ, if you have claimed to be a disciple at some point but have walked away, take heart because it is not too late for you. Take heart because Jesus has nothing but grace for you. Take heart because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. It is never too late for you to return to Christ no matter who you are, no matter what you have done, no matter what you have claimed in the past, no matter what your actions have been in the past. He is the father of the prodigal son waiting to receive with joy and celebration those who return home. But how does Peter go from saying you have the words of life to denying Christ to being restored to being a pillar of the early church? who ultimately faces martyrdom is it that he just personally was so taken with thankfulness for the grace that christ had given to him that he was able to do incredible things no 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 no. the answer is he was not alone following the resurrection jesus gave him and all other true disciples a helper called the holy spirit the holy spirit came and what did the holy spirit do What's the word we use? The Holy Spirit indwelt. I mean, it, it's literally like he, he came in. Sometimes the languages is, is they breathed him in. It was like they they took him into the core of their being. Almost like eating and drinking, right? Peter and the other true disciples took in the Holy Spirit of God, and suddenly were empowered in ways that just on their own they never would have been. And I'm not even talking about the super mystical type things we see in the book of Acts. I'm talking about the basic level of obedience to Christ that allows a person to get up every morning and continue to follow him and be obedient to him, especially in the face of persecution. remaining in Christ, abiding in Christ. We need God's Spirit if we are going to truly be His disciples in our world today. We must press into the Spirit as our source of power and understanding. We must feast on the Spirit and listen to the Spirit. And Jesus says that the Spirit comes through believing His words. Notice one thing that John makes clear here is that Jesus has this omniscient ability. And Jesus knew who was going to believe. He he knew who didn't believe. He he knows what's going on even here with Judas, right? One of you is a devil. The Greek there is the word diabolos, which means uh, false accuser. And uh, in most parts of the New Testament where that word gets used, it is referring to Satan. Uh, in fact, scholar Don Carson feels like that verse should, should really be rendered, one of you is the devil. But Jesus' choice, and he emphasizes this, his choice of Judas is key. Remember last week I said that the cross was not something that happened to Jesus that where this story ultimately leads to, with the beating and the torture and the crucifixion itself, that that was not just something that Jesus was a victim of, but instead John's painting this narrative where Jesus is very intentionally cultivating things to lead to the cross, to lead to that point. And here's yet another place where we see that in action. Jesus says, "I've chosen you guys." I've even chosen the one of you who is a devil who will betray. Judas was not a surprise at all. Jesus says, no, 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 I chose him. So let me me land the plane here. Uh, Jesus is not simply talking about communion. He's talking about what communion is meant to remind us of. Do this in remembrance of me. He's talking about the fact that he is the vine, as he will later say in John, and we are the branches. And if we want to be healthy, flourishing, part of the kingdom of God, then we must remain in the vine, he says. Because there is no health, there is no flourishing outside of the vine, disconnected from the vine. And luckily, it's not simply up to us through our own strength or our own intelligence or our own effort to remain connected to the vine. No, no, no. He sent us a helper in the form of the Holy Spirit so that that connection is facilitated and upheld But if we lean on our own understanding, if we're going after the stuff of this world, if we're still eating the same old diet while trying to throw some Jesus stuff on top of it, this connection is not going to happen. It comes through believing his words. And we've talked before about like levels of belief, but, but just to just to like drive this home, when the scripture talks about belief, it is never talking about espoused belief or projected belief. It's never talking about what you hope other people think you think. It's always talking about what's truly at your core what you actually believe. And what we find in our own lives is that what we do often is, especially in a moment of crisis, what we do is what's really in here. And what we project to other people is what we largely want them to think. And maybe it's what we aspire to be. But what he's getting at here is a heart level of belief. He's not saying, I just want you to intellectually agree with the things that I've said, or even I want you to fully intellectually understand the things that I've said. Instead, I want you to so take them in that they are rooted in your heart in a way that transforms you. You must be born again, right? And here's the deal, guys. Here's what I can't get past, and I hope this doesn't sound legalistic in any way, shape, or form. But if you're unwilling to read the words of Christ, if taking in the Scripture, especially the Gospels, where we actually read the very words of Christ, if that is not a part of your Christian existence on any kind of a regular basis then I would just venture a guess that you are not as connected to the vine as you could be. And and listen, that's not an indictment because I have work there to do as well. We're always all going to be in this place of we could be better or more or doing more, all of those kinds of things. But if taking in the words of Christ and not just going, what do, I, do I understand these? What do these things mean? But literally taking them in with the intention to do them. If that isn't a part of your spiritual practice, then let me encourage you today. It needs to be. Because how in the world can you come away from everything we've read today and not think that actually reading, studying, imbibing, meditating on, chewing on, sitting with the words of Christ should not be a prominent part of the life of any believer. His words are life. If we want the Spirit, he says, the Spirit comes through believing his words. And I don't know about you guys, But I need to believe his words, and I struggle to believe his words sometimes, right? There are things I happily and readily believe, and then there are things he says where I'm like, and that's true for all of us if we're being honest. We have to be chewing on this. I'm, uh, I'm doing a doctorate right now, slowly but surely, and I'm I'm, I'm really zeroing in on this historical Christian practice of contemplation or meditation. Um, not meditation like in an Eastern Buddhist sense of that word, but there's a, there's a long, rich... Tradition and history of Christian meditation, which is largely the practice of taking in the Word of God and then intentionally sitting with and ruminating on the Word of God. And I'm convinced that in our world of noise today, where most of us wake up and immediately reach for our phone, like we're all ingesting content like 100% of the time. I'm reading up on my phone. I'm on social media. I'm watching news. I'm in the car. I'm listening to a podcast. I got something on at my desk at the office every day. Like we're constantly taking stuff in. And again, you are what you eat, right? So if you're filled with anxiety and fear and depression, my first question would be, what are you ingesting? on a daily basis versus if I'm filled with love and joy and faith and thankfulness, my guess would be if that's true of you, you're probably spending a lot of time with the word of God. You're probably spending a lot of time in prayer that there is a correlation between those things. Does that make sense? And hopefully that doesn't sound legalistic because just doing these things as some sort of obligatory thing will not benefit you. Right, It has to come out of this desire to, to know Christ and be known by Christ. So let me, let, me, let me shut this down before I keep rolling on. I would really encourage you guys, if daily scripture reading is not a part of your life, it needs to be. And guys, there are so many fantastic resources out there. Uh, The one I would recommend this morning is just called the Bible Project. Many of you guys are familiar with that. They have a ton of different reading plans. They have a ton of different videos you can watch, like incredible stuff. The Bible Project, just Google Bible Project, you'll find it. Um, I would really encourage you to become more disciplined in this practice. And in particular, The words of Christ. What is he saying? What is he teaching us? What is he showing us through his words and his example? And if we will start to feast on it, if we will start to intentionally take it in and sit with it and chew on it, I have no doubt that you will go, this is a huge benefit to me. And I'm in a different place emotionally, mentally, spiritually than I was weeks before. Let's stop there. Let me go to him in prayer this morning. Father, thank you for your words. Thank you for the truth of your Holy Scripture. Thank you for what you call us to. But even more than that, thank you for how you draw us to salvation, how you send your Holy Spirit to fill us. God, help us to imbibe you. Help us to um, get rid and repent of the things that have fueled us and driven us and help us to truly become people who are nourished by you and your word. Who are seeking to take you in and, and to truly synthesize the things that you are saying and teaching us. Not just to learn them, but to do them. And Father, give us your Holy Spirit. Help us to be sensitive to the leading of the Spirit. To listen to the voice of the Spirit. And to do what the Spirit calls us to do. May we be a people who are so permeated with you that we are growing in oneness with you. That you truly are our Lord and Master guiding us and leading us every day. Help us, Lord. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.